Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the senior content director at Word on Fire. Today, we have something very fun for you. It is a Q&A that Bishop Barron recently did with students at Princeton University. It was hosted by our very good friend, Leah Labresco Sargent. Leah is a fellow of our Word on Fire Institute. She taught a recent course there titled Christian Community as Leaven for the World, which was all about how to build evangelistic communities that are warm and inviting and draw in people who maybe aren't already in the faith. Leah now serves as part of the Aquinas Institute, uh, which is a part of Princeton's Catholic campus ministry. And they were originally having an event where Bishop Barron would come in person and interact with the students at Princeton. But because of COVID, everything got moved to Zoom, as it seems like most things do today. And so Bishop streamed in from California and spent about an hour answering really smart, engaging questions from lots of these Princeton students. Today, we're going to hear the first half of this Q&A. Again, it's about a half an hour. And then in a couple weeks, we'll share the second half. So enjoy this special conversation with Leah Labresco Sargent, students at Princeton University, as Bishop answers all of their questions about faith, life, and evangelization. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone to our evening with Bishop Barron. I'm Leah Sargent. I work here at the Princeton at the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Life. I know we've got everyone kind of streaming in through Zoom. uh, So I'm going to give you a moment to just all remember to click the link for the folks who aren't already here. Uh, But we're so pleased to have you here tonight. So the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Life at Princeton is the Catholic chaplaincy. We're a resource for Catholic students and we're a resource for any student at Princeton who's curious about Catholicism or has questions about the faith. Hmm. So without further ado, let me pass things off to Bishop Barron with one of the questions we received from a student. Bishop, what are the best ways to share the gospel with people who think they've already heard it? How can I bring Christ to friends who have had some exposure to Christianity, but have rejected it? Yeah, thanks for that question. And Leah, good to be with you. Thanks for having me uh, today for this event. You know, in some ways, I think we have to re-radicalize Christianity. Christianity has always been a, a radical movement. Here's what I mean. At the heart of it is the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, you know, that my one theme is Christ and him crucified. Holding up the cross was central to the whole operation. What does the cross mean? Well, here's a a crucified criminal. Here's someone who was rejected by the power structure of his time. Talk about a a marginalized, voiceless victim. Um, You think of the animal cry of Jesus on the cross in Mark's gospel before he dies, this sort of inarticulate cry. Well, there's so much passion today, especially among young people, for justice, to care for the marginalized, to hear the voice of the voiceless to attend to the needs of the oppressed, etc. Well, right at the heart of Christianity is exactly that kind of figure, the crucified Jesus, done to death by the powers that, that were at the time. Now, keep telling the story. Jesus doesn't remain simply a victim of powerful forces, but rather through the power of the Holy Spirit is raised from the dead, which means that God's love is more powerful than anything that's in the world, more powerful than even these enormously powerful forces that did him in. Which is why I think 
holding up the cross of Jesus. Don't think of it as just a little pious exercise. That's a taunt. It always has been. The very fact that Paul, who held up that cross so courageously, spent a lot of time in jail tells you exactly how the powers that be take in the message of the cross. You know, one of the earliest forms of what we call the kerygma, you know, the basic proclamation of the faith, is you killed him, God raised him. There's the taunting quality of the cross. And so I think those who have a passion for the, the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized, good, good, welcome to Christianity, at the very heart of which is this crucified figure, but also the declaration of the power of God, which is greater than anything that's in the world. That's the still radical message of the cross and the message of the kingdom of God. And so I think for those who, you know, they've heard it, oh yeah, ho-hum Christianity, I don't know if they've caught how radical this message really is. Thank you, Bishop. I think the the radicalism of Christ's witness is something we see so so clearly in the witness of the early church, in people who knew that they were risking death um, and were proclaiming Christ's kingdom. But one student had a question about how we approach our lives as Christians with such a large space between us and the experience of the early apostles. So your next question from a student is, how do we emulate the lifestyle of Jesus and his followers in a time so technologically, socially, and culturally different than theirs? Hmm. Yeah, well, of course, the point is not to you know, go back to the uh, social uh, setting of the first century and live the way they did. It's to emulate Jesus is to live in love and compassion and mercy and nonviolence, radical trust in the divine providence, turning one's entire life over to the Lord. Those are all the ways that we still emulate him. That's what discipleship is all about. So I wouldn't worry so much about imitating the lifestyle of the first century. In our very technological age, here and now, follow those great uh, patterns of life that are laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, as Thomas Aquinas said, you want to see the Sermon on the Mount in action, look at the cross. Go through the eight Beatitudes. They're all exemplified in Christ crucified. So that's how you emulate them. That's how you follow them, is um, live according to the great pattern of the sermon and the pattern of the cross. And that remains as, as viable and as, uh, as I say, radical today as it was 2,000 years ago. Well, I think one of, the, one of the challenges students face when they're trying to figure out what that looks like, we live our lives in the shadow of the cross Um, and through the triumph of Christ over death, freeing us from bondage to original sin. Mm -hmm. But when we go out to proclaim that gospel, one student asked, how do you explain the fallenness of the world or show its fallenness to a non-Christian who has no notion of the fall? Many of our friends or classmates live a life where they don't understand why a Savior would be necessary. So how do we start to bridge that gap? No, that's a good question because you're exactly right, the implication you're drawing. If, if we just have a minor set of problems that we could solve through, you know, psychological advance or through economic reform or through political revolution and so on, then we wouldn't need a savior. We'd need, you know, a teacher maybe. We need someone to uh, lead us, a bold political reformer. But at the heart of Christianity is the claim that Jesus is so much more than that. You know that the um, Advent hymn that we sing every year, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 
and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Well, that's the, that's the lament of someone who's held um, for ransom. It's someone held captive. That was common in the ancient world. If you were a traveler and you'd be arrested and you'd, you'd be taken away and held for ransom. Well, that means you're helpless. You can't save yourself. What you're doing is you're crying out that you might be delivered. And that's at the heart of Christianity. There's something that's off in us that's so profound that we can't solve it ourselves. Now, I think, Leah, actually, our language of addiction and the 12-step language is very helpful here because, you know, what's basic to anyone that's gone through a 12-step program is, look, you can't save yourself. If you think you can, this thing is going to be a disaster. You have to admit, you know, your powerlessness. You have to turn your life over to a higher power. Well, that's very spiritually alert language, I think. Sin has always been recognized as a kind of addiction. It's not just like, this, you know, a couple minor problems I have. I just got to spruce things up around the edges. No, no, sin, capital S, that we all have in us is a kind of fundamental dysfunction. And I think we feel it whenever we sense that we're at war with ourselves. Look at, at Romans chapter 7 now, you know. Paul says, that the good that I would do, uh-huh, that's what I don't do. <laughs> the evil that I would avoid, uh-huh, th- that's what I do. <laughs> and see, anyone who's ever been caught up in an addiction, and I'm sure some people listening to me right now have struggled, whether it's to alcohol or to sex or, or to the internet or whatever it is, that's what it's like, right? I mean, I know, I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. I know the thing to avoid, but that's exactly what I do. And when you're caught in that, you know you can't will yourself out of it. And there's a very simple reason, by the way, because the will's the problem, right? If, if your mind is the problem and your will's the problem, you can't think and will your way out of it. You'll just kind of exacerbate the problem. So, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's all of us. See, we're, we're all meant to, to uh, come to terms with our captivity. And that opens you to precisely a savior. You're quite right. And not just a teacher. Now, maybe young people interested in philosophy and theology, read Kierkegaard. That's Kierkegaard's point over and over again, is that he's not just a teacher. If he is, then he's like Socrates, you know? And Socrates will tell you some basic things and teach you some basic moves. And hey, you're doing great. You're on your own. You don't need me. But Jesus is not like Socrates there. He's a savior, not a teacher. And, you know, else that comes to my mind is the famous line from Chesterton, you know, where he says, the only dogma for which there is empirical evidence is the dogma of original sin. <laughs> and I think, I mean, watch the 11 o'clock news at night, or, or even better, watch what's going on inside of you. And you'll see the evidence, if you want, for what the church means by original sin. This deep level dysfunction that we can't solve on our own. And that is an enormously important door into Christianity. I think sometimes when we know we need a Savior, we're still not quite sure how to recognize Him or what He's going to ask of us. So Thomas is asking about the kind of two wings it can feel like of Catholic spirituality, a deep river of mercy, uh, but also a strenuous call and rigorous theology. 
you know, how do we kind of navigate these two different parts of our faith and how do we respond when it feels like they're in tension with each other? Yeah, good. Okay, that's that's helpful. Well, in a way, they're in a very uh, healthy tension with each other, and that's okay. Um, you know, that God, and I love that that phrase, the deep river of mercy, there's right through the Bible, and that God is, chesed is the Old Testament word, I mean, tender mercy. And you see it embodied, of course, in Jesus, his unconditional love. But the love that's exhibited by God in the Bible is never a cheap grace, to use Bonhoeffer's term. Uh, it's a love that demands, a love that awakens a response. Um, so there's the moral demand. We don't simply just you know lie back and say, oh, I'm basking in the mercy of God. No, the mercy of God is um, harsh and dreadful, you know, as Dostoevsky would have it. And it leads ultimately to the cross because that means self-gift, you know. So I, I like that tension on the moral plane between kind of the acceptance of grace but then the great demand of grace. Uh, if I'm catching it right, the intellectual side too, the more rigorous kind of terrific. I'm with Josef Ratzinger that you know we're a logos religion. The minute you say that the logos became flesh, um, logos, of course, there are, are Jewish uh, antecedents there, but but clearly John is calling upon the Greek tradition as well. The logos, the mind, the reason of God which is apparent in the world and the intelligibility of creation, is what becomes flesh in Jesus. And so from the beginning, look at from, from John and from Paul on, we have people who are uh, deeply engaged intellectually around the truth of Christianity. I'm with Newman, too, in saying that one of the signs of a properly evolving Christianity is that it theologizes so stubbornly. Uh, when the church begins saying, oh, don't worry about you know, the life of the mind, and oh, don't, don't fuss with all this intellectual stuff, that's a sign of corruption. And I'll say it frankly, that when I was coming of age, there was a lot of that. In the years just after the council, there was a sort of anti-intellectualism. <clears throat> that's a sign of corruption. That means the church is, is, is not evolving, it's devolving. So they all belong together, don't they? The deep river of mercy, beautiful, and that's displayed on the cross. But it calls forth a response of love that is hyper-demanding, and it invites this powerful reflection on the Logos, you know, the, the full intellectual engagement. I like that Catholicism, you know, the kind of all-in quality of Catholicism, the all-of-the-above quality, uh, a mysticism, a spirituality, a, a deep moral demand, a rich intellectual heritage, all at the same time. As a convert, the, the both-and-ness of Catholicism is sometimes overwhelming. Um, yeah. It really speaks to how much Jesus gives us more than we ask for or more than we think is reasonable yeah. to ask for. That's right. Uh, that's right. And got, in, in prayer, so often we ask for something like, oh, Lord, here's what I want. you know. But that's never all that interesting. It's always what Christ wants for us. And it's always the best, but it doesn't seem that way. Because he, he's, go back to original sin, he's always fighting against the, our tendency toward self-absorption or whatever it is. So, but what he's got held out for you is always better than whatever you're asking for. I've got some people submitting questions anonymously, which is an option if you'd rather not come on video to ask yourself, or if you suspect you've got a very bad connection and you'd like me to ask <laughs> okay, for you. So I'm going funny. to pull two questions here, Good. Uh, which are from students who are kind of worried about how to evangelize when they're speaking to people who don't see the demands of Catholicism as a gift. 
so I have a student who wants to know how do you start evangelizing someone when the parts of Catholicism they may know about, the teachings on sexuality or mm -hmm. divorce, don't feel inviting. Um, and especially from another student, you know, how do we defend Catholic beliefs such as the value of life from conception to natural death and the importance of the family in an environment where these are rejected and it's mainstream to reject them, as many students feel is the yeah. case on campus? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that we all wrestle with. Um, when I was over in Rome for the Youth Synod back in 2018, we talked a lot about these things. And the image from the scripture that kept coming back to us was the road to Emmaus. And the feature of Jesus at the beginning, simply joining two disciples as they walked the wrong way. So they're walking away from Jerusalem. And in Mark's gospel, or Luke's gospel, uh, that's always to walk the wrong way. Everything tends toward uh, Jerusalem. So they're symbolic in a way of a lot of people today who are walking away from uh, the faith, walking away from Christ. But the beautiful thing is he doesn't uh, judge them. He doesn't uh, come down on them, doesn't correct them. He, he simply walks with them. And, and what a lovely touch, of course, they don't recognize him. How often that's true today, too, that people don't know Jesus or he's become like an alien figure. But he walks with them. And what does he ask them? Well, what, what, what are you two talking about as you go on your way? <laughs> and so he didn't give a sermon at first. Is he listened to what they were talking about? What's on your mind? I think that's a very good evangelical uh, strategy. So you sit down with someone, you know, well, what are they talking about? What's on their mind? What are their questions? And the clever evangelist can find a hook in whatever that is. Whatever the, the interest is or the passion is, you can find some way to lead that person thereby to Christ. So I recommend that very strongly. Walk with them in a, in a listening sort of attitude. Find out what's on their mind. What are they listening to musically? What plays are they watching? What kind of friends do they have? What are their, their interests and passions? And then use that as your starting point. Um, I, I would tend to, to recommend don't begin with the church's sexual teaching, which for a lot of people is just a, a block, you know. I told the bishops um, uh, last year when I, I spoke to them on evangelizing the unaffiliated, I said, you know, I'd recommend beginning with the church's justice tradition because a lot of young people especially, they love that. They're passionate about it, as I said. Okay, we got a really strong tradition coming up out of Isaiah and Hosea and, and, and Ezekiel and the great prophets coming up through Jesus himself into the church fathers, Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Church social teaching tradition. We, we got a lot to say about that. Good, good. Start with that maybe. Start with that part of the tradition that young people might find more agreeable. But I think above all, listen to them and, hey, what, what are you talking about as you go on your way? Excellent. Well, we have a number of questions about kind of addressing the challenges of the present day. Uh, but Elizabeth, who's joining us next, has a question about how to be prepared for challenges in the future. Let's see. Elizabeth, are you with us right now? All right, Elizabeth, I'm going to come back to you as our subsequent questioner once you're ready. Um, and I'm going to instead pass on a different question from an anonymous uh, attendee who wants to know, how do we approach evangelizing someone who isn't indifferent to the church or kind of just dismisses of the church, 
but has grown up in a faith tradition that actively rejects Catholicism as heresy or speaks of the Pope as Antichrist? Well, I think there are two ways. They're, they're kind of in tension with each other. But one would be you are, you are bound to find some points of contact. So no matter what, if it's a Christian tradition, uh, there are lots of points of contact. You know, Jesus himself and the cross and the resurrection and um, the, the demands of the Christian ethical life, the importance of preaching. There's all sorts of things that we have in common. Uh, maybe start with those. But the, the other side, the other strategy, a bit in tension with it, is, okay, let's start with the top three questions you got, or the top three reasons you don't like Catholicism. And I'm with Fulton Sheen there. I think most likely you're going to find there's some misunderstanding of what the Catholic position really is. So it could just be a moment of, of clarification. Like, well, let me. that's actually not what we believe. Here's what we believe. So I think either one of those can work. Uh, if the person's got... A, even a modicum of goodwill, you know, they're not just hostile to you. Say, okay, give me the top three. What are the top three reasons you don't like Catholicism? And let's start talking about that. Or, you know, from your side, even to say, hey, here are three things about your tradition that I think are really wonderful, and, and let me tell you why. So I think those both could work, depending on the person. I think it's a good place to start. And of course, once the conversation begins, it's harder to predict where it will go next. And we have to wait and consider the person in front of us. No, quite right. And everybody is different. And you've got to be kind of light on your feet. That's to say, you know, like a good tennis player has got to be able to move where the ball goes. And if you just have a forehand, well, the person will just keep <laughs> throwing to your backhand. So, I mean, you got to be kind of nimble and, and able to respond to situations um, and that's good. That's good practice, you know. One thing that helps me a lot is remembering that I can pause while evangelizing and say, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I'm going to go, in my case, check in with a Dominican friar and then yeah. come back to you because they're the nerds of the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but knowing I don't need to be prepared for everything someone may ask me in Th the moment. That's right. No, that's right. And that's fair. You don't have to be like, I, I'm the answer man or the answer woman. I've got everything together. And, and also the very fact that your your personality might be the most attractive thing to that person, that you're building up trust. If you're showing that, well, look, I'm, I'm a Catholic and I'm actually kind of a nice fellow and I'm not browbeating you and I'm, I'm not trying to be dismissive and disrespectful, okay, maybe that inspires in me a sense of trust. And that trust is is indispensable. You know, that's why the internet world is so, it's lovely, it's wonderful, but it's also terrible. As someone who uses a lot, you know, I know this. And what I mean here is so often our exchanges on the internet, because they're disembodied, they're impersonal, just words appearing on a screen, that can be so dysfunctional because everyone just wants to win the argument, you know? Well, I mean, you can, as many have said, you can win the argument and totally lose the soul you're after. My job as an evangelist is not to win arguments. I mean, if I were on Jeopardy or something, but my, my goal is to win souls, and I can be the smartest guy on the internet, and I can win the argument, but totally lose the person I'm talking to. So that's super important, that all the time you're reaching out in, in love, you know. Well, there's something I really appreciate about the way you evangelize, Bishop, because you go into these kind of maelstroms of sometimes toxic <laughs> online places like Reddit and Twitter. Yeah. And it really takes swimming against the mainstream culture of those spaces to be a Christian, let alone evangelize. 
So I want to invite Miguel, uh, who has a question, to come in because his question is exactly about how we know when we're swimming against culture and when we're part of it. Mm -hmm. Bishop Barron, thank you Hi. so much for being with us. I'll be virtually uh, these days. Uh, my question was, how do we discern when to be contrarian or when to be go against the grain in our modern culture? Because as you said, you know, we don't want to just win arguments. We want to do a lot more than win arguments. Mm -hmm. um, so that means in particular, with reference to culture, you know, what kind of music, when we learn what music is good, what good, how do we dress, what books to read. Uh, so learning to embrace the world, but also learning to know when to say no. And on a, on a second point related to that is, is how do we learn when's the appropriate time to speak up or to speak the truth? Yeah, good. And it's, there's no like quick, easy answer to that question. It's a, a matter of prudential discernment. The general principle, I go back again to John Henry Newman, is we go out to meet the culture the way an animal goes out into its environment. That's to say, uh, assimilating what we can from it, resisting what we must. Because if you don't do both those things, you'll be dead in very short order, right? If you don't assimilate anything from the environing culture, well, then you're, you're, you're dead. But if you, if you are simply resisting the, the culture completely, You'll also be dead, you know. So you go out in this kind of canny uh, style, and the church has always done that at its best. It, it's discerned from the church fathers on, like, like what's valuable, what's worthwhile in this culture. Look at the Platonism of the church fathers. Look at all the logos theologies um, that are that are arising from a dialogue with the uh, philosophy of the time. Maybe most famously, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Uh, Newman, the 19th century, dialoguing with uh, Locke and Hume and many others. Um, good, good. At the same time, the church has to resist. If there's something in the culture that's inimical to its form of life, um, and that's been true too, and that's why we have martyrs, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, at every age, the, the great saints have resisted. Look at a Thomas More, you know, who... Talk about someone that knew how to assimilate the culture and to move creatively with it, even rising to a very high point in it. But then he also realized, no, no, but that, what, what the king is asking me to do now, I, I cannot do. And then so resisted it to the point of death. So I'm speaking more generically there to your point that you're, you're doing both. What's the sign? Well, what's inimical to truth and to love has to be resisted. So there's something in the culture that's moving you away from love and is moving you toward self-protection, isolation, um, separation in, in the bad sense, alienation from others. Uh, that's something that needs to be uh, resisted. What's leading you away from truth, and I, I don't say that in sort of a, a, a glib or trivial way, God is the truth, which means God is, is most fully real. What, what's false what's unreal, what's not the case, that's always inimical to God and the things of God. And you well know all cultures, including our own, are often predicated upon lies and distortions and uh, half-truths and so on. Well, the church has to resist those and, and call them out. So that's a, a broad way of talking about it, both truth and love are criteria. Um, in your, now bring it all the way down like to your dealings with friends. Well, keep those principles in mind. You're, you're always that foraging animal, you know, assimilating and resisting. 
you're sensitive to both truth and love all the time. Does that mean that anytime you sense an untruth, you say it? No, not necessarily, because that could end up violating the principle of love, <laughs> right? Hey, you're wrong about that. Let me tell you why. Again, there's the internet, right? Is you're truthful, but you're violating the principle of love. Now, turn that around. You can also love in a way that violates the principle of truth. Oh, I, I just love everybody. I, I make no judgments and I never say anything's wrong. Well, that's not right either. So you're moving, I'd say, there in between truth and love all the time. And you're making your way as that, that canny animal makes his way. So I don't know if that helps. I'm kind of just trying to put some parameters around your question from the most general to the most specific. Um, but that's what you have to do. But there's no clear-cut answer because you've got to discern that prudentially in the particular case. I think that really speaks to the importance of having a well-formed conscience and knowing that yeah. that's a project of our whole lives, you know, not something we can just take for granted. Our next question yeah. is from Kyle, which is really a lot about how we get that kind of formation um, and are ready, like St. Thomas More was, to do what's called of us in hard times. Well, we'll take a pause there at the end of the first half of this lively Q&A between Bishop Barron and students at Princeton University. Again, in a couple of weeks, we'll share the second half of this great conversation. One quick reminder here, tomorrow, Tuesday, February 9th, Word on Fire will be releasing a brand new book, and it's one very dear to my heart because I'm the author of it. It's titled, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church. This book was intended to help anyone who knows a young person who has left the Catholic Church. So if you're a parent, a grandparent, a priest, a teacher, if in any way you work with young people who have drifted away from God or religion, this book will give you a concrete game plan with practical steps and recommendations on how to help reverse that momentum and draw them back to the church. Again, the book is coming out tomorrow, Tuesday, February 9th. Stay tuned to Word on Fire to find out more information about how to get your copy. And then next week, Bishop Barron and I are going to have a whole discussion about this phenomenon of young people leaving the church and how we can help them to return. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.